Okay, so coming back then to what we're doing today, um, we're starting off this, this, uh, this year looking at the book of Exodus. Um, we're going to look at um, two kind of key passages that I think give us the shape of what Exodus is, is doing. It's an Old Testament book, second book in the Bible. And it's really all about God giving his people freedom. Uh, we'll be seeing uh, this week what they need to be free from um, and how God begins to do that. And then next week we'll start to see what they're free for. And then we'll be going through uh, the Ten Commandments, uh, taking a commandment each week to explore what it looks like to live as God's free people and how that might help uh, people in our workplaces to see something of the goodness of God's ways and of, and of uh, his salvation. So that's sort of where we're going over this, over this coming term. Um, and what we're going to do today then is we're going to start with an overview of Exodus, uh, Exodus chapters 1 to 2. Uh, delighted to have more Casement back with us. Every time I get more in at the minute, uh, I give him enormous amounts of material to cover. I, I kind of enjoy kind of testing his capabilities. Uh, Moore trains people to preach at Cornhill Training College, um, so he's well, well up to the task, I think, of, of doing this. Um, but Moore's asked me to read the first 14 verses of Exodus. Uh, I haven't printed them out, so you might just need to listen in. And I'll try to read them slowly, and then I'll pray, and then we'll ask Moore to come and tell us uh, about a world without God. So this is Exodus, uh, second book in the Bible. First 14 verses. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And we'll, we'll stop there. Well, let me lead us in a prayer as uh, we come together this lunchtime. Our Father God, uh, we've come back uh, to our workplaces over the last week or two, and uh, perhaps some of us are feeling like we're being ruthlessly worked as slaves. Um, perhaps others are enjoying our work. But thank you that whatever, we get the chance to come together this lunchtime to hear your word to us. Uh, to hear you speaking in the Bible. And so we pray, our Father, that you'd help us to hear your word this lunchtime. Help us to focus. Uh, help us to be able to put aside for a few minutes the, the affairs of, of, the, of the office and to hear what you are saying to us as uh, more brings your word to us. 
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start by asking the question, is there really such a thing as an overnight sensation? It's a phrase we often use to describe someone who shoots to prominence seemingly out of nowhere. Might be a musician or an actor or an author whom no one has really heard about, but who suddenly tops the charts or wins an Oscar, Oscar or scoops a top literary award. Generally, when you look beyond the hype, you discover that the person has been singing or acting or writing for years with very little recognition. And in fact, it may have seemed that everything was against them as they suffered rejection after rejection to the point where they felt like giving up. But then suddenly, everything comes together for them and the years of hard work in obscurity seem to have paid off. When you think about it, there's something quite sensational about a nation of people leaving slavery and heading for a land of their own. But the book of Exodus is no overnight sensation story. And in fact, everything seems stacked against a good outcome as we look at the opening chapters of the book. Of course, the book of Exodus doesn't just appear in the Bible out of nowhere. It's a continuation of the story which began in Genesis. And in some ways, the opening verses are a brief recap of what has happened previously. The last chapter of Genesis ends with Joseph and his extended family settled in Egypt. But as Joseph dies, he says to his brothers in Genesis 15 verse 24, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. He was thinking of the promise that we read about several times in Genesis that God made initially to Abraham to make him into a great nation and to give him the land of Canaan to live in. As the book of Genesis closes, though, and as the book of Exodus opens, it doesn't look like we're all that close to the fulfillment of that promise. And we're not. Exodus 1 verse 5 tells us there were 70 descendants of Jacob who settled in Egypt. Now, 70 is pretty big for an extended family. I don't think many of us would want 70 of our family to be coming to Christmas dinner or whatever. Um, but it's not enough to constitute a nation. So it's going to take time to grow the descendants of Abraham into a people. What we aren't told in Exodus, but which we know from elsewhere in the Bible, is that the action of this book is set 400 years after the end of Genesis. And if you think about it, a lot of people would have lived and died over those years, that 400-year period. But effectively, we know nothing about them. And if we just pause to think about that for a moment, I think it's quite helpful in terms of giving us some perspective on our own lives. In an age when so many people are so aware of their relative significance, and seem to be so keen for some level of recognition. It's good to be reminded that many, many lives have been lived over the course of history, which are not remembered by anyone and are not recorded anywhere. Just think about it. How many hundreds of thousands of descendants of Abraham lived and died in Egypt? And we know nothing about them. Maybe worth asking ourselves, in 
100 years time, maybe even 10 years time, will anyone be looking at our tweets or Instagram or Facebook posts? And if we have 100 or 100,000 followers or friends on our social media platform of choice, how significant does that make us in a world of over 7 billion people? Like it or not, we all live lives of relative insignificance. So does that mean that our lives don't matter or count for nothing? Absolutely not. If those hundreds of thousands of Israelites hadn't lived in the 400 years between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, there wouldn't have been a people of Israel at the start of Exodus. People needed to live and have children for a nation to be formed. And what we can perhaps forget is that in many ways it's quite amazing that after 400 years we have a distinct people living as the people of Israel in Egypt. They've not been assimilated into the Egyptians. They've preserved their own identity and at least to some degree have accepted that the God who revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob was not like the gods of Egypt. In verse 17 of Exodus chapter 1 we read that the Hebrew midwives feared God which suggests that they had been brought up to believe in the God who was greater than Pharaoh or any of the gods of Egypt. The people of Israel found their significance not in being known for who they were as individuals, but collectively in being the people of God, the people of God's promise, the people to whom God had covenantally committed himself. And that, first and foremost, is where we should find our significance if we're Christians. There's a slight temptation when you come to look at a book like Exodus that we too readily identify with Moses, the hero of the story. That's partly because we are the central character in the narrative of our lives. But it's also because there's something in most of us, I think, which would like to be the hero. We'd rather have the leading role than just be part of the supporting cast. But the reality is that very, very few people in the history of the Christian church have had leading roles. When compared with the vast supporting cast, there have been of people who have faithfully lived out their lives, brought up their families, taught their children about Jesus, and have sought, however imperfectly, to glorify God by their lives. Being part of the faithful people of God is not something to be despised, because God needs there to be that great number of people for him to be true to his promises. Certainly that was the case for the people of Israel in Exodus. Because one of the key things to notice from these opening verses of the book is that in a world seemingly without God, God multiplies his people in the midst of human opposition. That's the first point that I put down um, on, your, on your sheets there. In a world seemingly without God, God multiplies his people in the midst of human opposition. The bulk of Exodus chapter 1 is focused on Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. And one of the most powerful men in the known world at that time. He's someone who clearly has no fear of the one true God. All he's concerned about is his own position. We read in verse 8 that he did not know Joseph, which may mean that he didn't know the history of how the Israelites came to be in Egypt, or it may be that he wasn't going to acknowledge the enduring debt of gratitude that the people of Egypt had to Joseph the one who had saved their land in a time of severe famine. 
and arguably had cemented the foundations of their becoming such a rich and successful nation. When Pharaoh looks at the people of Israel, he doesn't see the ancestors of the saviour of their nation. Instead, he sees a threat to his security because God has been keeping his promise to Abraham and has been creating a nation of people as numerous as the stars in the sky, which, as you probably remember, is what he told Abraham would happen. If you look at the opening verses of Exodus 1, it's hard to escape the fact that there are lots of Israelites. Verse 7 says that the people were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. And Pharaoh in verse 9 confirms this when he says, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. God had kept his promise to multiply Abraham's descendants. But now it comes a very real threat to their survival as we find a ruler intent on stopping them from becoming a nation. And he tries a number of tactics of increasing ferocity. First, he enslaves them, forcing them to build store cities for him, as verse 11 says. Part of his intention was to leave the Israelites so worn out with physical labor that they would stop having children. But that didn't work because verse 12 says that the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And that meant that Pharaoh had to take more drastic action. So he ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill all baby boys at birth. If it had worked, it would have been a clever move because in time, the Israelite girls would have had to marry Egyptian boys and the people would have been fully assimilated into Egypt. But Pharaoh didn't reckon on Shifra and Puah, the God-fearing midwives who weren't prepared to kill any child. So once again, Pharaoh was thwarted. And verse 20 says, the people multiplied and grew very strong. Pharaoh was trying his best to get one over on God. But he really had no clue who he was up against. Now, of course, life wasn't exactly good for the people of Israel living through this time of slavery. And they probably didn't feel all that blessed as Pharaoh oppressed them and marginalized them. For many generations, it's fair to assume that the Hebrews had probably lived in relative ease in Egypt. But now things were becoming pretty horrendous. Egypt was no longer a pleasant place to live. It was a really miserable place to be. And we mustn't forget that as the story of Exodus unfolds because that was part of the problem of God's people. They forgot how awful life was in Egypt. But the opening chapters of Exodus are a reminder to us of just how bad it really was. And yet, despite that, God was keeping his promise because he was continuing to multiply his people despite the opposition of the evil power of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And that has been the reality of how God has worked throughout history. The world has always been in opposition to God. There have always been those who have wanted to silence the message of the gospel and subdue and assimilate God's people. In 1949, when Mao Zedong expelled Christian missionaries from China, it looked like the church would die. But instead, as we know, it grew over the decades. 
And although it's hard to be certain about the number of Christians there are in China today, it's certainly well into the tens of millions. And this surely is a truth which is massively encouraging for us, is it not? We may not be experiencing the level of opposition and persecution which many Christians in our world are facing, and yet it's easy for us, as we look around, to think that this is a world seemingly without God. Our churches may have decent enough numbers at Christmas services, but are there, many, are there as many as there would have been 20 or even 10 years ago? And how did last Sunday's attendance compare with the turnout at the carol service? The mood in the world around us is not particularly sympathetic to Christianity. And as more and more laws get passed which go against what God's word teaches, it seems that Christian ethics are outdated. And even if people are not overtly antagonistic, most of them wonder why on earth you'd want to be a Christian. And however nice people are, very few are interested in coming to any kind of Christian event or in reading the Bible with a Christian friend. But while things may look rather bleak as we look around us, God remains faithful to his promise to Abraham to make him into a great nation. Because the true descendants of Abraham are those who follow in the faith of Abraham. And around the world, God is continuing to build his church. And even if in this place, he is doing that. He may not be doing it in vast numbers, but nothing can thwart his purposes. And despite the opposition of a world which wants to make it harder to be a Christian, God is still convincing people of the truth of the gospel and is bringing them into his kingdom. So even though we may feel like we are living in a world without God, we can be sure that God is multiplying his people in the midst of human opposition. But the second thing to notice from these opening chapters of Exodus set against this backdrop of oppression and slavery, and that is that in a world seemingly without God, God raises up his rescuer in the midst of human opposition. You see, when Pharaoh's efforts to reduce the number of Israelite boys being born don't have the desired effect, he takes a more drastic approach and orders that every newborn Hebrew baby boy be thrown into the Nile. He can't trust the Hebrew midwives, so he's made this order that every baby boy be thrown into the Nile. And it's against that backdrop that we read at the start of Exodus chapter 2 about the birth of Moses. A Hebrew baby boy who should be thrown into the Nile to drown. But instead we read that his mother hid him for three months until she could hide him no longer and then decided to put him in the Nile in a basket of bulrushes. Humanly speaking, it seemed like a risky strategy because if an Egyptian soldier had found him, he probably would have had no qualms about tipping the baby into the water. But the person who finds this beautiful baby is Pharaoh's daughter. And she's so moved when she sees the baby crying that she wants to save him. And as you know, it gets even better because Moses' sister Miriam offers to find a Hebrew nurse for Pharaoh's daughter. And so it ends up that Moses' own mother gets paid by Pharaoh's daughter to look after a baby who should have been drowned at birth. Of course, the irony of it becomes even greater when we realize that this is the one whom God will use to lead the people of Israel away from Pharaoh's oppressive rule and be their rescuer from slavery in Egypt. 
rather than killing this boy, Pharaoh effectively ends up protecting him and ensuring that he lives and thrives. One thing, though, that we must miss in this account is that the opposition to God's rescuer isn't confined to Pharaoh. Because when Moses grows up, and you're probably familiar with the story as it goes on, there comes a point where he goes out and he sees an Egyptian beating up a Hebrew. He doesn't side with the Egyptian, which he could well have done, having been brought up in Pharaoh's palace. He might have thought to himself, well, probably this Hebrew was asking for uh, the beating that he got. But instead, he comes to the aid of the Hebrew and ends up killing the Egyptian. Here is God's rescuer appearing on the scene. But how is he received by his fellow Hebrews? Well, in verse 12, we see that the next day when Moses sees two Hebrews fighting and challenges them, the one who is in the wrong turns on him and says, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And suddenly Moses realizes that his fellow Israelites are not automatically going to look to him for help. In fact, they're more likely to shop him to Pharaoh because of what he's done. You see, they don't like the idea of Moses judging them. The baby saved from destruction by Pharaoh's daughter is one thing, but a grown man who might think he had the right to tell them what to do is a totally different matter. And of course, it's not too hard to see the parallels with Jesus, is it? He is God's supreme rescuer. When he was born, the angels declared, Today is born to you in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. But then when he grew up, he started to challenge the religious leaders of the day. And they weren't too sure that they wanted this seemingly self-appointed Savior. In fact, they took exception to the idea of him judging them. And such was their hatred that they engineered his death. As the story of Exodus unfolds, we see that nothing will stop God from using his appointed rescuer, Moses, to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. And in the same way, nothing could stop God from using his ultimate rescuer, Jesus, from rescuing his people from a much greater slavery, our slavery to sin and the death that results from that. But just as not everyone accepted Moses as God's appointed rescuer, so many did not accept Jesus when he was on the earth. And so many do not accept him today. Every Christmas we see that many are happy in some way to pay lip service, at least to the idea that there's something good and a special baby being born. But they don't want that baby to judge them. How tragic though it is when that happens. We know that after the encounter with the two Hebrews, Moses fled Egypt at the end of Exodus 2. And he didn't return for 40 years. And so in all likelihood, the man who didn't want Moses to be his judge wouldn't have lived to experience the great deliverance that Moses was going to bring. He would have had to die in slavery. 
And that sadly is the reality for many in our world today. They choose to ignore God's rescuer and fail to become those who are part of God's ever-increasing people. Many people around us are in slavery to sin. And if we're honest, as we look at their world, the world that we live in, often they don't seem really to mind it because life isn't quite as bad as it was for the Israelites in Egypt. That's part of why we're told about their slavery. We're also told later on in Exodus that the slavery gets even worse. The opening chapters are just setting the scene. It actually gets a lot worse before it gets better. And for all of us, we have to come to realize just how bad a world without God really is. How bad it is when we are in a world where we give in to our own selfish desires. How truly awful it is to have no thought of God and no desire for any rescuer. And so we must pray for those whom we know to come to the realization that a world without God is a dreadful world and a life lived without God is a life of ultimate destruction. A life where God is not present is the worst of all possible worlds. And yet we can't open people's eyes to see that. God needs to do that. But he is able to because he is the one who has promised that he is building his nation of people. He is building his church. He is bringing people in. No matter the opposition of the world around, no matter the indifference of people as they seem happy enough in their current state. God is building his church and his people. God is faithful to his promises, no matter what the opposition around us might be. And that is something that should encourage us, not encourage us to think we're going to be the savior of the world, the one who will lead uh, hordes of people uh, from <clears throat> the bondage to sin that they're in, Uh, and the freedom in Christ, but those who can collectively be part of something that really does matter. And however significant or insignificant we might be, we can in some way play our part as we seek to remain faithful to God, as we continue to pray that he will open blind eyes to see the horror of the world without him and the wonder of what he offers to us in Christ. That's something for us to think about um, around our tables. Um, You're free to stay or free to go. Um, um, We're out of time, so we'll take... That's my fault, because I was was slow. Um, Will you you lead us in a prayer, and then I'll... Sure, sure. Father, we thank you that your word assures us of your sovereign control of all things. It gives us the reality of a world without you and how awful that truly is. We pray that you will keep reminding us of that and uh, therefore encouraging us with the wonder of what you've done for us in Jesus. But also we pray that you will open the eyes of others around to see that uh, a world without you in slavery to sin is ultimately the worst of all possible worlds. But we need you to do that, Lord. We ask that you will open the blind eyes of those that we know and help us to be faithful in our ongoing witness to them. 
for Jesus' sake.